In episode eight of our Frankly Speaking podcast, recorded on Thursday, the 31st of March, 2022, I'm joined by Senior Fellows of Peace, Security and Defence, Jamie Shea and Paul Taylor. We're now five weeks into the war in Ukraine. Russia announced earlier this week that it would radically reduce its military activity in northern Ukraine, and yet there seems little indication in Kiev that this is happening. Can we trust what the Russians say, or is it intended to mislead us, as the Ukrainian military has warned? What is the West's strategy, and what more can be done to support Ukraine on the battlefield? And what about Western unity? Is it still holding up? I put these questions and some of the citizens' questions from our Debating Europe platform to our senior fellows joining me this week. So, um, Jamie, let me turn to you for this first question. What do you see as Russia's military strategy now after five weeks of war? What do you think Putin's real war aims are at this stage? Well, I think that he's given up on the idea of a complete conquest of uh, Ukraine, if that were his intention in the first place, because it's never been clear what he meant by denazification or demilitarization and what he had to do in Ukraine to achieve those rather murky objectives. In other words, in order to demilitarize Ukraine, do you have to occupy uh, 100%? 90%, 70%, 30% of the country, same for uh, obviously demilitarization. So it was never really clear what he was up to, but the initial strategy after the invasion began on February the 24th suggested that at least he wanted to take the capital of Kiev because there was a large a Russian column that was headed that way, that he wanted to gain quite a large portion of the Black Sea coast uh, of Ukraine and the Sea of Azov, taking over many of Ukraine's important ports and therefore really strangling uh, the Ukrainian economy, and that he wanted to expand the Russian territory in the east out of the Donbass, uh, you know, up towards Kharkiv uh, uh, in the north uh, and over the sort of northern part of Ukraine uh, on the border with uh, Belarus. So, where Russian troops are today must logically correspond to the strategy that they are following. Now, what we've heard, of course, from uh, Russian generals uh, uh, over the last couple of days is that uh, they're now going to focus on the east, uh, building up their bridgehead, which they've had since 2014 in the Donbass uh, region, probably with the idea of sitting on the territory uh, and ultimately recognizing it uh, as uh, independent, like they've recognized recognized already the so-called independent republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, and then eventually a referendum like we had in uh, uh, Crimea in 2014 to incorporate these territories uh, into uh, uh, Russia. Uh, so that's what I think is going to happen. But, but there are two factors here, or three. Number one, will they actually do it? Because what they say and what they do, as we've discovered, are often very different things. And over the last couple of days, you know, the shelling of uh, Russian, uh, Ukrainian, excuse me, cities uh, like uh, uh, Kiev and so on, Chennaiev uh, in the north uh, have continued. So no let up uh, there uh, yet. Um, number, number two, uh, the, I think is the question is, will they keep uh, forces uh, nonetheless uh, around Kiev or in other cities simply to stop the Ukrainian army also redeploying to the uh, east 
to fight the Russians there. Because, of course, if the Russians go and all of the Ukrainian forces also go, uh, clearly the Russians are not going to be in such a good position. So they may try to keep some blocking forces to keep Ukrainian forces sort of uh, tied uh, down. Finally, uh, they are now occupying 170,000 square kilometers extra uh, of Ukrainian territory uh, than before the invasion, which is apparently the size of uh, North Dakota in the United States or Tunisia. So this is quite a large part. And if they stay where they are today, they are almost in possession of one third uh, of Ukraine. So when they say retreating to the Donbass, does that mean that they will retreat from these 170,000 kilometers? Or will they basically try to stay where they are today? I mean, I think that in addition to the Donbass, uh, it's almost inevitable that they're going to try to seize Mariupol, uh, which they've been besieging, so that they have the land link uh, between the Donbass territory and Crimea that was lacking before. Uh, Crimea didn't have any water supply because the Ukrainians were blocking it. Uh, and I think that they will want that portion of the Black Sea coast, whatever happens, A, because as I said, it, it, it takes over important Ukrainian ports. Uh, and therefore makes a, 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 a kind of a future Ukrainian state much economically weaker than it would have been otherwise, and B, because it gives them that land corridor into Crimea. The problem is, is that, uh, as the Ukrainians know, is that uh, once the, the Russians sort of build a kind of, uh, you know, First World War series of trenches and fortified positions, uh, it's very difficult to dislodge them. Uh, and uh, the U Ukrainians have quite been quite good so far at fighting rather small Russian units, dispersed Russian units, you know, no supply lines, no food, no water, demoralized, cut off. But once the Ukrainians have to go to you know, First World War style, trying to take very dense, very fortified, very armored, fixed Russian positions, it it's going to be a lot bloodier and a lot more difficult for them. What do you think is the, the West's strategy and what more can we do to help them, uh, Ukraine in the battlefield um, and uh, in sustaining those left in the country? Well, uh, I think the first thing is to continue with what we're doing, which may sound logical, but it's not, because uh, as you've seen with President Biden promising President Zelensky uh, a further $500 million of aid yesterday, uh, uh, the financial flows are very heavy. I mean, these weapons are costly and the Ukrainians are using them up at an enormous rate. Yesterday, the United States announced that it was going back to producing the javelins and stingers because it's depleting its own stocks. European countries are depleting their stocks too. So if we don't give the Ukrainians a kind of Second World War style lend-lease arrangement, you know, credit, uh, you know, buy now, pay later uh, for these supplies, we can't continue, I don't I think, don't think to give them away for free indefinitely. Uh, and if we don't sort of go back to producing them, uh, then the great irony would be that at the very moment when the Ukrainians are really being successful and taking the war to the Russians, pushing them back, they suddenly run out of these supplies and they're sitting ducks. So this keeping the supply going, I think is important. There's going to be a big conference in London today organized by the UK Ministry of Defense to try to sort of set up some kind of you know, mechanism uh, to allocate what Ukrainians need, who can supply it, to make sure that supply routes are there, a kind of agency almost, you know, for the re-equipment of, of, of Ukraine. So I think it's important to keep that effort up. The second thing is that if the Ukrainians are going to go on the offensive, 
is it the time to give them more powerful weapons? Uh, as I mentioned, to get the Russians out of fixed positions, they're going to need multiple launch rocket systems. They're going to need you know, very accurate long-range artillery. They're going to need long-range air defense systems. They're going to need the American switchblade, so-called kamikaze drones, and all of this. More expensive, more sophisticated equipment. They'll need some training on it. Uh, they've asked for aircraft. They've asked for tanks. Uh, so uh, is the West really now ready to sort of up the ante as it were, uh, to supply this, which is more suitable for an army which is going on the offensive rather than being on the defensive. The problem there is, of course, that it risks prolonging the war. Um, number one, it could also be viewed by Putin as NATO, again, crossing that thin red line to open engagement, uh, if, if only in the training uh, sort of uh, areas. Um, and the West, I think, as this conflict goes on, has to decide whether it wants to give the Ukrainians sufficient amounts of equipment so that they can hold their position and then negotiate a reasonable solution with Russia, or whether the West believes that the Ukrainians can actually win this, you know, kick the Russians out, uh, liberate their territory, you know, humiliate Putin. Uh, and uh, if that's possible, you know, whether they're prepared to invest the equipment, time and effort necessary for Ukraine to do that. So I think that moment of truth will be arriving fairly soon. Mm -hmm. um, Paul, I want to bring you in now for the next question. Um, could, uh, how, how is Western unity holding up, would you say? Uh, what are the main differences among NATO allies and EU partners? And what are the main risks of Western unity falling apart? Well, I think Western unity is held up you know, remarkably strongly so far. You've seen one or two differences emerging in recent days. Um, the, the, the key issues, uh, obviously, uh, uh, there, were, there was not widespread agreement uh, with President Biden's uh, 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 challenge, questioning of whether Mr. Putin can uh, remain in power, and that was walked back by the United States. Uh, but obviously, there were some European allies, you know, Germany and France in particular, expressed uh, differences from that. Um, there are differences over what kind of arms to supply to Ukraine, as Jamie uh, alluded to. Um, you know, the degree to which offensive weapons are supplied is going to be um, uh, probably an issue. You know, the, there was apparently a first uh, Ukrainian uh, um, uh, strike just into uh, uh, Russia that destroyed a, an arms depot. And uh, everybody held their breath a bit to see how the Russians would uh, uh, react to that. And the answer is that in public, they haven't reacted at all so far. So. Uh, that suggests that it's being played down. But that question, were uh, uh, Ukraine to start striking targets across the border in Russia uh, more frequently, I think that could be divisive. The, uh, the energy issue, um, whether and when uh, to uh, uh, impose any uh, oil or gas embargo on Russia has the potential to be divisive. It's already divisive in the sense that some countries are trying to um, uh, uh, announce big uh, decisions either when they don't get a lot of Russian oil and gas, so it's relatively easy for them, which is the case of, uh, of the United States and the UK, or when they do get a lot of Russian oil and gas, but are uh, indicating a sort of medium term objective rather than saying they're going to cut off right now, like Poland. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on Germany, but what you see is that Germany is uh, um, uh, already kind of preparing its own population for a possibility of such a cutoff, which could come in this dispute over payment for 
um, uh, uh, Russian energy. Uh, Mr. Putin has demanded payment in rubles. The Russians appear to have backed off from an immediate cutoff because they too are caught in a, in a dilemma as to whether to be reliable suppliers or whether uh, to use this as a weapon. Other issues I think that are divisive potentially, um, the, the degree of dialogue with Russia. I think you know there's been some criticism of President Macron being on the phone to Mr. President Putin all the time. Um, uh, that could become more, di more, more difficult. Uh, the question of what the West's war aim should be, as, as Jamie said, should, you know, should, should it be to help Ukraine defend itself and then, uh, and then negotiate a, a, a compromise at the table? Or should it be to encourage uh, and uh, um, you know, provide the means for Ukraine to hold out and, um, and launch a real counteroffensive and drive Russia out uh, militarily? Some people clearly are very strong at least rhetorically, about the need to defeat Mr. Putin. So I think that's potentially divisive. Um, and then, of course, there are all the issues which we have just gone a little bit on the back burner after being very live 10 days ago uh, about what the red lines and consequences would be in case of uh, chemical biological weapons use in Ukraine. Um, that, that um, uh, you know, still has the potential uh, to be uh, divisive and uh, as has um, you know the possibility of, of Belarus getting more involved so and, and finally I would say the approach to China there are differences there as the degree to which um, uh, we should uh, get tough on China uh, as a long-term strategy uh, which was our, our primary concern before uh, uh, Russia unleashed the war in Ukraine or uh, whether we should be perhaps a bit more conciliatory towards China in order to try and keep them out of the Russian camp in this war. So those are a lot of issues which could be divisive, but for the moment, at least at, at leadership level, I would say they're being managed pretty well, not least by the fact that President Biden is maintaining such a frequent dialogue with European leaders. Many thanks, Paul. Um, you've highlighted a number of issues there. Uh, perhaps, Jamie, you'd like to come in and, and uh, give your uh, insights. Well, uh, certainly, I, I think that uh, how the West sort of handles the negotiations which have started this week in Istanbul, of course, they're in the hands of the Ukrainians. The West is not going to sort of take that negotiating portfolio away from the Ukraine. It's up to the Ukrainians at the end of the day to decide what they want. But one issue which has come up already is this idea of security guarantees, which Ukrainians insist on uh, as the condition sine qua non uh, for accepting a, a, a peace agreement. And uh, some European countries already, like Germany yesterday, have said, yes, we're prepared to be a guarantor uh, country. Uh, Turkey has also uh, suggested it would, would, would accept. Uh, others like Italy have made similar noises. Uh, but the UK yesterday said, no, it was not prepared to be a, a, a guarantor. So there is this very difficult question uh, of uh, what, the, at the end of the day, uh, those guarantees would be, because uh, what the Ukrainians may want is a kind of Article 5 NATO protection without NATO membership. 
uh, and it would be very difficult for NATO, uh, I think, to give a, a, its ultimate uh, prize, the security guarantee, to a country which would not be in NATO, and therefore whose decision-making and calculus vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, it, it wouldn't be able to influence. So uh, if it's going to be a security guarantee, um, which is not backed up by NATO military plans to defend Russia, or the inability for NATO to have military bases in Ukraine you know, to implement the security guarantee, it, it's going to be far less uh, than what we have in NATO, and therefore the Ukrainians are likely to be very disappointed. Uh, would Russia be also a guarantor nation? Because clearly the guarantees would be directed at Russia. So I think that you know, there's lots of uh, amorphous uh, ideas uh, churning around out there, and I think Western diplomats really need to sit down and think very hard, you know, what do we mean by all of this and how far are we really prepared to go? For example, another issue, if, if Ukraine uh, cannot join NATO uh, and accepts to be neutral, could it remain in NATO's partnership for peace? Uh, because for the last uh, couple of decades, Ukraine has had this special arrangement with NATO, the NATO-Ukraine Commission, special partnerships, uh, lia NATO liaison offices in Kiev. Uh, NATO has been training the Ukrainian forces. It's been organizing exercises, all under the uh, conducting a, a, a naval uh, maneuver every summer called Sea Breeze in the uh, Black Sea. So uh, there's been a lot of interaction. It, uh, NATO could do this with a neutral country, for example, Sweden and Finland, uh, neutral countries, partners of NATO. But would uh, Ukraine being a um... Uh, being in, henceforth a, new, a neutral country that cannot join NATO, rule out all of these partnership activities. The third issue is uh, there are 50 Shades of Grey, a very famous novel, but there are also 50 Shades of Neutrality. There's armed neutrality, unarmed neutrality, uh, internationally imposed neutrality that can never be changed. Neutrality, which is basically the choice of a country, like Finland and Sweden, which they can change at will uh, as they are having their debates on joining NATO. Uh, 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 at the moment, um, the Russians have asked for denuclearize, uh, well, not denuclearization. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons many years ago, uh, but I don't think there's any uh, big arguments about Ukraine being a non-nuclear state in the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. But on the other hand, you know, not having foreign troops on its soil, not having foreign bases that's very different in terms of neutrality. So, you know, what do we mean by, by, by neutrality? So uh, as we get into these negotiations, I think, you know, the West is going to be have to be very crystal clear uh, about what it's really willing to offer uh, and be clear to the Ukrainians about what they're getting and, and not getting and try to figure out, you know, if the future Ukraine is going to be sort of neutral, um, will it have the possibility of joining the EU? Because that's what the Ukrainians want. But you remember the whole crisis back in 2014 was triggered, not because Ukraine was about to join NATO, that was not going to happen, but because it was about to sign a new trade agreement uh, with the EU. And uh, when the, the president Yanukovych uh, at the time changed his mind and uh, decided to abrogate the deal with the uh, with, uh, with the EU and go into the Europe Eurasian Union with Russia, that's what prompted all of the big demonstrations on the on the mind and the color revolution that Putin subjected to. So will Russia be prepared to allow Ukraine to have an EU destiny? But we saw in Versailles just a couple of weeks ago that when Ukraine asked to be recognized as a candidate, the EU, uh, at least in terms of the consensus, said no. Uh, we're not prepared. Uh, we'll make a vague uh, statement about you know, your future EU aspiration, but we're not going to start the process. So 
I, I will stop here, Tracy, but I just want to point out that there's lots of very sort of amorphous ideas, uh, Ukrainian expectations versus NATO and European reality floating around. And I think in order to avoid crushing disappointment, we need to start being a bit clearer with ourselves and with the Ukrainians uh, what all of this really does add up to. I would like to bring in um, some of the questions from our citizens, um, the Debating Europe panel. Um, Paul, you already touched on um, the energy, um, and in your opinion, can the EU's energy dependency be harmonised with our values and our security principles? What's the right direction, he asks? Well, I think Andres has a, a, a good question, because um, there is one way in which we can harmonise our uh, uh, energy needs with our principles uh, and values, uh, which is by becoming more and more autonomous uh, in, 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 in our energy supplies. And that is uh, by speeding up, and that's all already begun, but much more could be done, uh, the transition to renewable energy sources um, uh, by uh, you making the best use of our own interconnections within Europe to share energy, whether those be uh, pipelines um, uh, or energy grids uh, or re reversible interconnectors between different countries' uh, energy systems. And we're not making that uh, optimal use of that. And for example, France has long blocked um, uh, energy pipeline through the Pyrenees, ostensibly on environmental grounds, but uh, one suspects also to protect the monopoly of uh, EDF, the French electricity provider. Uh, uh, and um, so that put, makes Iberia a bit of a, 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 an isolated zone in, in, in energy terms. But um, so that's one thing. But secondly, in the short term, medium term, uh, you, you'll have noticed, and I'm sure Andras is aware, that the, the, the disposition uh, of uh, energy fossil fuels around the world, re uh, resources of uh, uh, reserves of oil and gas, does not uh, uh, overlap with the map of liberal democracies in the world. So we will, for an interim period, have to buy uh, energy from countries that don't share our values or, uh, and political system. That's unavoidable. We can reduce that by, by, by making the efforts I described. However, we can also reduce our dependency on any one of those authoritarian uh, regimes by diversification. That's already started with the attempt to get uh, liquefied natural gas and that, um, uh, uh, but that brings into play countries which are not Jeffersonian democracies. I'm talking about the United Arab Emirates, I'm talking about Qatar, um, and uh, you know, one or two countries are being brought out of uh, quarantine, such as uh, Venezuela, uh, um, which has uh, not uh, become uh, more, more democratic or uh, overnight or less corrupt, um, but because um, the United States um, wants to diversify uh, energy supplies. So I think in the medium term, short to medium term, we're going to have to um, uh, balance our, our, our dictatorships against each other in our, in our energy supply. But in the long term, we need to uh, tap the sun and other things which are not authoritarian and are not uh, uh, opposed to our values. Many thanks, Paul. That brings me nicely into the next question um, from Michael, who asks, how do you think the Ukraine crisis might 
uh, might make the US and EU reconsider their relationship with Saudi Arabia? Perhaps, Jamie, I'd like to bring you in for this last question. Well, I, I think Paul already broached this uh, very, very well. Uh, the lesser evil sometimes has to be chosen over the greater evil. You've seen Boris Johnson go to Riyadh over the last couple of days. President Biden has been trying to phone the crown prince. I understand he was rebuffed at first. So there is a sense of once again going to the Saudis, as we used to do in the past during the great oil shock of the 70s uh, to ask them to ramp up their production. You know, the Saudis have some of the largest uh, easily tappable uh, oil reserves. Uh, they are able to ramp up production quickly in a way that many other countries can't because they don't have the infrastructure or the technology. Uh, and of course, the Saudis have been in the past very dependent upon Western arms uh, for their security. Uh, and so we've had effective levers uh, over them. But of course, uh, we're in a diff diff different situation these days where sometimes our policies contradict each other. For example, when, when uh, Joe Biden became president, he did something I think admirable, which is he blocked US military sales uh, in certain categories to the Saudis uh, because uh, he wanted to put pressure on them to make peace in Yemen. You know, the Saudis have intervened in Yemen. Um, and of course, there was the uproar when the Saudis were implicated in the murder of the journalist Yamal Khashoggi in Istanbul a few years ago. So we started to sort of get tough on these authoritarians that Paul was rightly speaking about, and then suddenly realized that we need them after all to help us out of a whole uh, with the energy crisis. So uh, geopolitics has not gone away. And we, as I said, are going to have to sort of balance, you know, short term realpolitik with much nobler long term goals of you know, greening our economies, uh, getting out of fossil fuels, uh, going into renewables. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's going to not be an easy act. So, for example, the environmental lobbies are not at all happy that in the UK we're thinking of going back to fracking. Shell, uh, the big company, Royal Dutch Shell, has just reversed a decision when it comes to exploring for oil in the North Sea. Uh, because the oil price has gone up and it's now commercially uh, uh, viable. So I think three parts, uh, and I, I echo Paul. Part number one, we're going to have to have some short-term fixes because do we want to see the yellow vests all over the streets of Paris or London or Berlin protesting about falling living standards in the next couple of months. Uh, clearly, clearly not. Number uh, uh, second thing, we're going to have to diversify. And Paul uh, uh, rightly broached that, nothing to add. And thirdly, we're going to have to keep the environmentally, environmental lobby rightly happy in our own interest by somehow combining this with pushing ahead uh, with the, the EU's Green Deal, the, uh, the, all of the plans to uh, eventually uh, move to uh, renewables. It sounds a contradiction, but diplomats are paid to produce coherence out of contradictions. Yeah, if I can add just one, one word to that, of course, there's one other factor which hasn't been sufficiently put in place so far, which is getting our own populations to reduce their energy use. And I remember, you know, both of us are old enough to remember uh, the 70s oil crisis when, you know, you, there were countries where you could only drive one day out of two, you know, um, uh, depending on whether you had an odd or an even license plate number. Some, some uh, uh, enterprising people managed to have two. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, there are all sorts of things that we can do, turning the heat down, um, you know, showering with a friend or at least showering sh shorter and so on, um, that, that, that can make a difference to our energy consumption uh, and, and cutting out the wastes of energy. Uh, there's still more to be done there, energy efficiency. Um, the uh, uh, International Energy Organization um, 
came up with an agency came up with a very uh, uh, simple to-do list of 10 points to reduce our energy dependency a few days ago. I think we ought to, uh, our leaders ought to be you know, paying much more attention to that. And that um, we need to sort of lead a civil society re response of, you know, turn the lights out, uh, turn the lights off to, um, to thwart Putin. On that note, I, we're going to have to leave it there for this week. Thank you to our senior fellows, Paul Taylor and Jamie Shea, for joining me this week. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode eight of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine.